<clears throat> Hello and welcome to the Listen to This Bull live show. Hi, my name is Matt Mulholland. That's Remington Huggins. And this is the show that we talk about bullshit in the insurance world. And we take your questions live. We uh, All you have to do if you want to ask us a question is put something in the commentary and we'll actually answer it about anything, really. Remington, what's the weirdest question you got asked this week? Man, I think it was something to do with what underwear you were wearing. It was something along those lines. So, um, yeah. I remember having to do something with your calves, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think we had a calf off. So that got, that got interesting. Yeah. Those uh, double barrel calves came out, and it was it was really weird. I keep saying calves as, as if you have baby cows attached to your legs. Yeah, yeah. I really can't Maybe. figure out the difference. Um all right, let me hit this intro and then we'll get started as we talk about the education of forensic engineers today. Oh, I hit it as <laughs> hey, we, we are warning. We know that's your I'm favorite. On a lot of uh, cold pills, cold medication pills, I I might be slightly um, intoxicated on medication. Okay, there's there's a fair warning. Well, fair if, you're warning. In, if it was before a deposition, uh, you know, make sure you put that on the record. Yeah, well, on the record, it is officially on the record. So we are talking about forensic engineers and the lack of education that they get. And I have the best, the foremost forensic engineer on planet Earth here on the show with us today. Do you know who that is? I do. I've got Chad T. And I don't know what T stands for, but I have some suspicions. Chad T. Williams here. Chad uh, is the author of one of the best documents that we have been able to utilize to talk about the repairability of asphalt shingles in a long time. Uh, one of the things that I find funny is when I first uh, met Chad, I, I grilled him a little bit about this document and he didn't run away screaming, which was awesome. So luckily that that didn't occur, but I'm going to bring him on right now. Hey, Chad. Hey, how you doing? <clears throat> how are you doing today? Doing all right. My middle uh, initial T is for Thomas. Say that again? My middle initial T is for Thomas. Thomas? Yeah. That is not what I was expecting. I really wanted more out of that. <laughs> I'm very disappointed. <laughs> my, my bet was Tile. I thought it was going to be Chad, Tile, Williams. Yeah, I don't know. I was going for a tyrant or or uh, tyrant. <laughs> terrible, I love it. Had, um, Tyrone even would have been better. That would have been cool. Anyway. Chad, tell us a little bit about yourself, man, and then I, I want to. I'm gonna make uh, Matt ask you the question of what you know springboarded you to to write this article as it comes to asphalt shingles. Sure. Um, I'm a licensed professional engineer. I'm licensed in 21 states. Um, I've been a forensic engineer full-time since uh, 2011 and part-time back to 2011. Jack, can you talk a little bit louder? Sure. That's right. Is that all right? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. 
Um, as I was saying, I am a licensed professional engineer in 21 states. I've been a professional engineer since 2007, uh, forensics part-time since 2008, full-time since 2011. Um, I spent quite a while working for uh, engineering firms associated with insurance companies. Um, I've seen the industry kind of going in some directions that uh, are uncomfortable. I'll say it that way. And uh, about four years ago, I decided I had a, about as all I could take of it and uh, started my own company. And we focus on accurately and honestly presenting what's going on. And we focus on it from a perspective of someone's got to live with it. Someone's got to deal with it. Someone's got to maintain this. Someone's got to work with it. So how are we going to do that? What damage is there? What's the consequences of it? And what are we going to do about it? All right. So the last time I saw Chad, I was teaching the avoiding the engineers in auto class in Oklahoma. And he comes in and he's like, hey, I got to leave in just a few minutes. I got to go meet with the governor. All nonchalantly. <laughs> and shit. Like, there's nothing wrong with that statement. Like so, it's normal. <laughs> so I, in addition to all the stuff I do as a forensic engineer, I'm presently the uh, sitting president of the Oklahoma Society of Professional Engineers. And um, we had a call from our governor's office that asked me if I could come down and uh, discuss some things with them. So I uh, attended for a little bit of your class, ran down to Oklahoma City and had that meeting and came back and kind of got the uh, back end of your class. There you go. <clears throat> hey, did you... Uh... Did you learn anything from Matt's class? That's a hard question to answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about <laughs> how, how about this? Was, was, I'm going to rephrase that question. Was, was Matt accurate on his presentations? By and large. Um, there, I think there's some um, background and some broader context that you would have to be on the engineering side to really understand and really comprehend. But that's not anything on Matt's part. It's just a matter of there's some esoterics that you really have to understand. And I've been working with him on it. And I think uh, the few things that I would uh, take exception with, he and I have come to some kind of agreement on. There you go. If you, come, if you can get an engineer to come to some type of agreement, you're, you're doing your job. I, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> It takes me seven hours in the depot to do that, but um, and sometimes they still don't. So <laughs> I, I've literally sat in his class for uh, four different times, um, and uh, every time I, I walk away learning something. So uh, yeah. it, it's, it's a pretty unique class that no one else is doing, and yeah. he, he does a great job at it. He does. There, there's a lot of good context out of it. Don't don't get me wrong. There's a lot. There's a lot there, and uh, I think the industry would do well. Um, to implement a lot of what he's talking about. It would uh, solve a lot of problems and it would uh, make things a lot easier for everybody. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm a little bit baffled right now. This is the first time we've had a forensic engineer on the show and we haven't had a single comment from the audience yet. I There's got to be something somebody wants to know. <laughs> uh, right. Hey, Matt, I, I, and I might, it might be my computer, but I think you're lagging a little bit. Chad, are you noticing that? Yeah, it seems like he's going backwards and forwards. Kind of weird. Is my audio coming through? Yes. Your audio is coming through, but you're definitely, your picture is definitely lagging. 
Well, that's probably okay. No one's looking at me when you're on the screen anyway. I don't know, man. You got a beautiful beard there. You got a beautiful <laughs> beard. <laughs> well, hey, I, I'm going to start it off with the questions. And by the way, when it comes to questions, I was uh, on a, a Facebook group and one of the questions was, hey, what podcast for a new public adjuster is the best podcast? And multiple people said, listen to this bull. And one of them said, listen to this bull. The great thing about it is, is that you get to ask the questions. So, um, I, you know, we, we that's something that Matt had in his vision of making sure that there was an open forum in the sense of asking these questions and us getting through all the questions. But with that being said, I'm going to open the floor when it comes to questions by asking Chad, what is the, when you're in the industry, for instance, you know, you and I um, talked a little bit at uh, the conference last week in, in South Florida. Um, like when you run into people like me, and I'm not saying me as an attorney, but just people in the industry, like what is the most, what's the most common question that it, it is asked to you, you know, within that first five minutes? Who do you work for? I mean, that, that's unfortunately the, the most common question we get asked for. Um, I, I hate to say it that way. <laughs> and you, you say what to that? Uh, for me, the vast majority of our client base right now are property owners. Um, I do have some carrier work, um, but I'm very selective about who I work for. It's not that I don't take the calls, they just don't call me. So. If they did, I would have a conversation with them. And if I felt it was an honest and open request, uh, I would be willing to entertain it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to get into uh, coloring for report. Yeah. And I mean, in, I, I know it is a, is a question that's asked, um, but, it, and I bet it's sometimes frustrating just every time somebody talks that that's a question they ask. Um, but I, I could see where that is somewhat of a common question coming from somebody uh, just because it typically is. It's either, you know, you know, just like attorneys. Hey, it's either you're usually working for the policyholder or you're working for the insurance company. And so um, I, I could see how that's a question that's asked to engineers just kind of seeing um you know, what side of the fence you're on or whatever it might be. I don't think that's the right term to use when it comes to an engineer, but I, I feel as if people on that are hired by insurance carriers all the time versus homeowners or commercial building owners all the time have different opinions as to what is damaged and what's not and, and, and things like that. So I think that's what kind of comes with that question. It, it's a loaded question. Oh, it, it is a loaded question. For me, um, I'm going to answer these questions the same way, and it's going to be the same answer. And I'm going to ask the same questions of the parties involved, regardless of who who's involved. And uh, if it's not there, it's not there. If there's no damage there, there's no damage there. If it's there, it's there. Um, I'm not there to decide the policy. I'm just there to go, this is what's here, and this is what caused it. Um, you know, it's, as best we can with reality, we fresh that out. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And um, Matt, are you okay over there? Yeah, I'm trying to shut everything on my computer down very quickly just to have this be the only thing up. I do have a few questions I can pop up on the screen real quick. 
Uh, but even this web page is lagging. I can't even scroll through the commentary anymore. So the, the I can't even put it up. So if you guys can still hear me, though, um, the show's topic is the education of forensic engineers and, and the lack thereof. And so, Chad, when you became a forensic engineer, what kind of coursework did you take and what exists out there now? Well, let me step back for a second and talk about engineering education in general. Um, a lot of people don't really understand how our licensing works. Um, in order for us to become licensed professional engineers, we have to take two different exams. One we take is the fundamental exam, which is we take it typically right when we graduate from college. It's an eight-hour comprehensive exam covering all sorts of engineering disciplines. Um, upon graduation and upon um, passing that exam, you become an EI, which is an engineer intern in Oklahoma or NEIT um, in the case of Texas. Other states have a similar um, name for what that person is in that period of time. After that, um, we have to go through a practicum. When I did it years ago, I had to wait uh, roughly five years to take what's called the principles exam, principles of practice. Um, now they allow you to take it almost immediately, but you still have to have a four-year practicum to become a licensed professional engineer. For the forensic engineering industry, for the most part, you don't enter until you're a PE. Now, there are some that are EIs, but it's, it's an exception. So you come in having done, most of the time, some kind of design work for a period of years. Um, when you come into these firms, a lot of times you're given a one-week or two-week class that's a high-level, rapid-fire training that they want you to have. And then you're basically put in the field. And there's often not really any formal education, any formal training, any formal instruction that goes into it. And a lot of it becomes <clears throat> you're working with an engineer in the office and you're learning from them. And so um, it's, it's not really a formal process. And unfortunately, there's a great deal that we need to know in order to be successful in what we do. And by that, I would be able to be effective. Um, understand what's going on, understand the concepts of what's happening in the field, and be able to present that information accurately and factually. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that a lot of the engineers that are being put in the field really don't have the support, they really don't have the training, and they really don't have the experience to be able to make these calls. And unfortunately, what you'll sometimes see is a guy who a week ago, two weeks ago, was designing bridges, and now it's being presented as an expert on roofing. And while they may have all the engineering credentials, they may be a very smart, very intelligent person, if they don't really understand the ins and outs of forensics and the ins and outs of the insurance industry, in and out of what's going on, it puts them at a decisive disadvantage. And it uh, puts the property owner at a decisive disadvantage because they, they really don't have the background that they need. All right, let's see if I can get one of these to come up. Huh. I got some questions from the audience. Am I oh, this is maddening. Can you thoroughly investigate the ladder from a ladder on the E? Maybe. Um, <laughs> it, I hate to say it that way. If you're using a drone so you can get the images of the bridge and things like that, and you're looking for uh, representative conditions on the roof, then maybe you can do that from the E. But it really depends on exactly what it is you're needing to do um, to answer that question. Yeah. I don't know. So if, if 
they're not on all the eaves. Maybe not, though, right? It would if the damage is somewhere else. If we're talking about hail and it's on the side that would have shown hail, I think we're making some assumptions there. I'm assuming that if we're talking about a, a lateral lane, you're looking at lateral lanes along the perimeter of the structure, and you're taking it where you'll be able to yeah. see what's going on all the way around it. Um, and I'm assuming that with if you're talking about the damage, most, most likely hail, you're seeing it in the lower part, which would be representative of what you'd see throughout the, the uh, broader roof. But I'm also assuming that you're going to have some kind of drone or something like that to be able to see the higher level parts of the roof, like the flashing, the uh, red shingles, uh, the vents the uh, mechanical caps, things like that. Yeah. Oh, bloody hell. All right. Things are slowly improving. Sarah asks, I'm getting some echo on my end. What information does a forensic engineer need to start an assignment? What's best practice for prepare? You know, that medication is very interesting. Oh, okay. What is the best practice for professionals to get documentation for? So the, the one of the things that I, I want people to understand, when a forensic engineer is engaged, they're engaged for a scope of work, whether it's on a carrier side, whether it's on an attorney side, something. There's some question that's been asked. They need to understand that question. And then um, they really need to, you know, the parties involved really need to understand what that question is. If a contractor PA or an owner or anybody else is under a different impression of what the scope of work is versus what that engineer is, the resulting report is not going to align uh, with what they would be expecting. So making sure that expectation is realistic and set from the very beginning is really important. Um, as far as what is the best practices for professionals to get documentation for, I will normally ask the attorneys I work with, the contractors, um, the owners, whomever is involved in it, I'll ask them for any and anything they have. This relative to the claim. Um, I'll ask about history. I'll ask about inspection reports. I'll ask about did you have video of the storm? Did you have um, any photos? Do you have any maintenance records? We'll ask a whole litany of things. Uh, the more information we can get up front, the better. And I really think that that's really important for everyone because um, every once in a while we we'll find some nuggets in there that you know really clarify what's going on. Yeah. All right. What I've learned, Matt, is um, like I when I send an assignment to a forensic engineer to we're talking about roofs, so let's just keep it at roofs. But, you know, I have like a six prong thing where it's it's location, data loss, type of loss, any other engineering reports. If there was any prior inspections in those reports, uh, I provide weather data as well as any other type of uh, pictures. Um, or evidence of um, the actual structure that that forensic engineer is about to inspect. So it's like six things. And I use that as a template. If I'm working with like a new forensic engineer that I haven't worked with in the past, I'll send it over and say, hey, am I missing anything? Or is there information that I'm providing that is irrelevant that you would like to, uh, you know, for me to you know eliminate going forward? So um, th those are the six things I kind of packaged together and I literally list them and I, you know, put it all in one email to the forensic engineer. So for ind individuals out there, it, it, I don't know, I would say 80% of the time I'm, I'm, I'm getting everything that they need, but uh, that's a good question that Sarah pended. I mean, oftentimes when we meet with the engineer, 
we ask them what their assignment is and they give us something very, very simple or simplistic uh, because the assignment that the engineer is given, especially if it's a large firm, uh, is coming from their dispatch. It's not coming directly from the adjuster that has very specifically given them a custom-made assignment or a custom-made scope of work. It's it's a drop-down menu from their dispatch unit or something. Even if the adjuster were to call the 800 number and say, this is specifically what I want, once it gets to the actual engineer that gets assigned, it's usually watered down to something simple like um, identify the cause of loss. A lot of the specifics kind of get uh, thrown out of there. Now, it can get added back in once there's a phone call between the adjuster and the engineer, though. Um, I don't know if that's a commonality or if it's just something that I've noticed with the firms that are in my area. But it, it seems to be the large firms don't seem to have that small firm touch where the engineer is actually communicating directly with the adjusters. I can't speak to that, but the recommendation I will make to everybody is this. If your insurance carrier is asking an engineer to come out, I would ask in writing, what is the scope that they're asking, you're asking them to do? And then when that engineer comes out, I would ask that engineer directly, what is the scope? Now, they may vary in wording, but if the intent is the same, then cool, go forward, do what you need to do. If it's different, then we need to say that it would be prudent for the owner to say, let's stop Let's call the adjuster and let's find out why I was told one thing and you were told something different. Maybe there's a reason that that changed. Maybe there's not. One thing that I think the public and I think that a lot of our industry needs to understand, a lot of engineers are taught, if I'm sent out to look at one very narrow component, we're to assume that the other components are not in controversy and we're not going to get into those sections. So in other words, if I'm sent out to look at a hail claim on a roof, I'm not necessarily going to go be looking at all the damage on the windows or the brick other than for collateral indication. And if all of a sudden I write a report and it's about the roof and you go, but what about the brick and the windows? If the brick and the windows weren't in my scope, then I would never have written about it anyway. What if the engineer goes outside their scope and they start adding stuff on that wasn't really part of that? Do you think that that's an issue? If you're, looking at a situation where they say um determine the extent of damage and then they come in and they apply their own definitions like cosmetic or functional and they're not tied back to the policy then i think there's an issue there um i think that we need to stick with what is the damage um, here's what it is um if they were asked to determine the extent and then they start trying to say it's an old storm um then i think we have some some questions we need to be looking at uh one of the things that i get kind of preachy about is this trend of trying to blame everything on an old storm. Um, a lot of engineers for a current storm event, they want to have spatter, they want to have video, they want to have photos, they want to have all this information for a new storm event. Then they will say an old event doesn't have to have it. There's a cognitive dissonance there that if I have to have it for this, but I don't have to have it for this. And so there's a problem that we have there. But by and large, if an, if a, uh, an individual is coming out to look at a roof, make sure that you know the scope and make sure that you're verifying the scope between the two. All right. I got a lot of very detailed questions from Mark Kramer. Hey, real, real quick before we jump into uh, Mark Kramer chapters, 
Um, <laughs> and that's all for fun. Um, I, I swear that Chad hit like a pet peeve of mine and I absolutely lose my mind when this happens. I'll get a, so we're in litigation at this point in time. We're talking the data loss was two years ago. An engineer for the carrier just went out to the property, did an inspection. Four weeks later, three weeks later, I get the report and I look at the report and it's, and it says there's no, there's no tree branches or, or, or debris in the yard. And therefore they, they can't pinpoint it to the particular data loss. I, it, that absolutely drives me crazy when it's like, look, man, the date of loss happened two years ago. Like their 12 year old kid went out in the front yard and picked the tree branches up and moved them to the side. Like for, for them to use that as ammunition absolutely drives me crazy. And when I see that in the engineering report, and, I don't, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about, you know, even a month or two or three months after the loss, I'm talking about two years when they want to use that to support their findings. I, I can't wait to get them in a deposition. I mean, it, it, that, that's just one, that's one thing out of many that drive me crazy. I had to throw it out there. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. One of the things I will say, um, document, document, document. If you're a property owner, document, document, document. If that engineer comes out and you have photos of spatter and debris of whatever, you want to, if you want to hand it to them, fine. If you want to email it to them, fine. If they don't show it, they don't use it, and they still say, well, I don't have it, then that's a question that you can bring up Remington and you can deal with. But the more information, the more documentation you can give, the better. Because I see the same thing where it is two years later and they go, well, there's no spatter. And it's like, well, spatter commonly is not visible beyond a year, maybe two, depending on the individual surfaces, and maybe longer or shorter, depending on individual circumstances. You're two years later. But I see that a lot, too. It, it frustrates the crap out of me. <laughs> We're on the same page, for sure. Uh, Matt, I know you have a bunch of questions, bud, that you wanted to go through. Oh, there's a ton that are on here. Um, it's like I opened the uh, the storm gates just by mentioning that there should be questions. I think everybody felt like uh, they were given permission. <laughs> there we go. Um, there, there are a few in here that are. I think we should ask first, though. So I'm going to skip ahead of a few people and then come back, guys. Uh, Larry Bird is here. If, if you were being hired by a carrier, so go back to your uh, days when you were working for some of those other firms. If you take assignments from carriers, what guidelines do you receive from them when they assign a roofing claim to you? Understand I've been out of working for carriers for almost four years. Um, difficult question to answer. Um, sometimes you would receive um, discussions that would be like, look, we think that this is cosmetic versus functional. And that's why they're sending you out. They would say, I think it's an older hail claim. They would want to find out if it's an older hail claim. Um, a lot of times it wasn't explicitly what they wanted to tell you to find, but you could read it once. And then um, the leadership in the individual firms, uh, depending on who you are talking to and who they, what they were doing, would sometimes um, have training that would be, you know, what we're doing. And one of the things that, that uh, I noticed over time, and, I, and please understand, I'm not being specific to any 
one firm or any previous employer at all, it, and just referring to the general industry, it seemed like we went from how to find out what happened to how to write a report to the night one. And I don't like that, but that seemed to be a shift that happened about five, six years ago. And um, it started with some firms and some individuals, and then it becomes more pervasive over time. And again, I'm not speaking to any one person, entity, or, or group. I'm just referring to a general trend that I've seen in the industry. All right. I think what he was looking for is something like uh, you're not allowed to approve anything. <laughs> I, I I think Chad did a great job, and I'm reading between the lines of, "Hey, there's a question of uh, cosmetic damage. Here's a here's an assignment. You know, I, I, I'm reading between the lines here. I think you know everybody kind of gets a, a hint of some of the things that you know occur before an, an assignment. Is, Sure. Yeah. All right. So let's get back into what Nick was started here then. Is it a good idea to have the homeowner's engineer meet the carrier engineer at the inspection? Or is that a waste of time either way? I love this comment. And I said a couple of times, by the way, but I'm curious what your opinion is. It really depends. And I, I'd say it that way, but it really depends on the character of the engineer that's there and the, um, and really kind of what's going on. If the damage is not there, the damage is not there. We shouldn't be there at all. I mean, that's the first thing. If it's a controversy about the damage, sometimes you can have discussions and be able to do things. Other times there's basic pleasantries, but then um, you know, the engineers are there to do what they're there to do. Um, I have found that in the past that it is beneficial for me to be able to be there to observe what's going on because I can get an understanding of uh, the other side and understand what, why they're there, what they're, they're looking at. And, uh, I hate to say it, but it really just depends on the individual circumstance um, and depends on the people involved. All right. Well, in my experience, uh, I've had an engineer on site with the other engineer and there was one of the two times that it's happened, the opposing engineer tried to show up my engineer in knowledge and my engineer took the bait and wanted to show up their engineer in knowledge. So there was like a nerd off that was going down on <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. I would have sold tickets to this and uh, it, it was probably the coolest uh, appointment I've ever been to. And it, it was a measuring contest for sure. Um, and in the end, uh, it actually led to there being coverages. The second time that that occurred, there almost was a fight, though, where the engineers were uh, basically just completely pissed off at each other the whole time. So I'm not really sure if it was a good idea the second time around from what I hear from other people where this occurs, most of the time, the engineers just don't talk to each other. That's the bulk of it. Um, the engineers are trying to avoid a controversy. They're trying to avoid a scene. Um, my thing is that I can usually 
just with my experience, I can talk to them and I can ask a few questions. I mean, the, the first thing I usually ask, you know, right off the bat, like, hey, what's your scope of work? Why are we here? And I've had engineers get really offended and really upset when we ask them that question. But um, I mean, it, it's a fair question. It's like, I, I, I'm here to observe you. I'm here to watch what's going on. I'm just trying to understand why we're here. Um, sometimes it, it becomes um, controversial. Um, other times you've got people that cooperate. It just, it really just depends. Matt, from that view, uh, you're definitely more live. There's, there's no doubt. You're not, um, lagging hard. So, you know, we, we prefer that view. So we know every single motion that beard makes, you know what I'm saying? We can't, we can't have you freezed up, my man. Yeah. Um, I am going to reset that computer. So there's going to be an interim of me and you get to see up my nose a little bit while we do this. Um, oh, look, a windows update. <laughs> uh, i love it i love it hey matt you got to throw one of mark's questions on there mark kramer's i know you, you yeah. a couple, but we got we got to throw one of them on there for yeah there's a ton uh, of them let me yeah. get to the start of mark kramer the directors of mark kramer here we go if yeah. uh can you read it because it gets tiny on my screen yeah. Is there any scientific data to actually determine longevity of hail spatter? Question mark. The common response is no spatter means it's outside of the one year time frame to report. And actually, Chad kind of really already hit on this a little bit. But, Chad, we, we hear the word spatter. I mean, honestly, I'm hearing that more frequently in the last, I would say, three years than I did probably seven years ago. Um, I don't know why, but um, it's definitely a, a, a term that's getting thrown around there more. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Well, I use the term clearly discernible, and the bulk of the time, spatter remains clearly discernible for about a year. That means it fades. It means in some circumstances you may not be able to see it, um, but it's a general guideline. Some people say two years. Between a year and two years, it's starting to get faded. Depending on the surfaces, it may not be as, as clear, and it becomes more of an argument. Um, some surfaces like pavements where you've got sediments within it, um, that spatter can go away in a matter of hours to days, depending on what's going on with the rain and uh, sediment transport on top of the surface. Um, there's not a hard and fast absolute rule. Um, I've seen some circumstances where you have a uh, rooftop HVSD unit or an electrical transformer where the oxides are pretty extensive, where the spatter may last multiple years, five, six, seven years. Um, part of the reason for that is the chemical reaction necessary to redevelop the, the uh, oxides may have been used up in the surface. And so what is necessary to obscure it, particularly on older devices, may not be physically present. And if that's the case, then that spatter mark may last a very long time. Um, so it, it, it's really a matter of looking at the totality of the circumstance, but there there's no single hard and fast rule that it's going to be, you know, this length of time or that length of time. Love it. Love it. And so that's no good research, basically. And if someone were to say that the lack of spatter means that it was years old, doesn't really give you good reasoning without giving any kind of disclaimer anyway. Not without giving a context. Yeah. Uh, there, there was one hail event that I've seen where the spatter was non-existent to minimal. 
and that was out in Abilene, Texas, a number of years ago. And there were a lot of theories as to why we weren't seeing a lot of spatter, but we would see fresh damage. And we would that was consistent with hail, but we wouldn't see a ton of spatter. And there were a lot of discussions as to why, but uh, never a consensus opinion. I'm, I'm picking right. up on little nuggets I'm going to use in deposition. So uh, I, I love the information stream here. <laughs> Where can we find a list of legitimately unbiased engineers depending on location? Is there a specific site that we can reference? Is there like an only engineer site or something like that? Or I don't know. Not that I know of. <sighs> I can, Is I there can a list of legitimately unbiased anybody anywhere? I I don't think that there's – that'd be a hard list to do for anything. I, I think what I would uh, suggest, in other words, a, a broader way to look at it is the engineers come from their perspective. Um, my background was facilities and operations engineering. I think about it from a lot of times facilities and operations, and I go, if I have this roof and I've got to maintain this roof and I've got to sit here and say to an owner, we've got a plan to – uh, maintain this property, what am I thinking about? And so when I look at wind damage or I look at uh, storm damage, I'm going to be looking at if we repair it, is this actually or is this going to be a fix it and I don't need to worry about it anymore than it would have the roof in an underlying condition. Um, that's a different perspective than say someone who was just in design. And I think it's really important to understand that uh, perspective is, is a much bigger issue, I think, than necessarily bias there you go man. That, was a, that was a good professional answer to that I, I i do agree to that um we have hey brian asked a question he says can you determine a roof is repairable by visual observations so i think he's trying to ask is uh, do you have to do testing to determine if a roof is repairable or not? I think you can get a general idea to the condition of the roof by looking at it, but if you're going to be able to document it and have it stand up, you're going to need to do some kind of an assessment on it. Um, the paper that we produced and went through peer review and publication on with the National Academy of Forensic Engineers would be helpful when it comes to asphalt comp shingles. We went through and basically took the industry recommendation of, hey, we think there's damage, we don't think it can be fixed, remove it plus shingle, and came with a method of, okay, here's how we're going to document it, here's how we're going to report it, and here's where we suggest things go. Um, I think that that's a, a good thing for asphalt uh, comp. Um, I think there's some other papers that are in process right now that will be of value when it comes to commercial. Awesome. So when you say with commercial, are you talking like uh, like flat roof materials? Yes. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. It's common that we meet engineers that are specialized in fire suppression systems or perhaps structural engineers that are specific to high-rise buildings and bridges. What actually constitutes an engineer to be able to truly understand causation and damage to roofing systems? Is there specific testing for this area of engineering? Mark, you're my hero for this question. I love you, man. Well, let me start with uh, engineering is a, uh, a broad arena. We learn by 
experience. We learn by doing. We learn by working in the subject. Um, academic instruction provides a baseline, provides a frame. And I kind of think of it like bones, but the muscles, the ligaments, the skin, all these other things that we, we have to make us who we are, are developed over time. We learn, we study. Um, unfortunately, right now, there is not much in the way of formal instructions when it comes to forensic engineering. I wish there was more. Um, there's a few courses here and there, but not, not a whole lot. And when it comes to understanding damage, a lot of it is exposure. It is working with it. It is understanding um, how buildings are designed, how they're built. But it's also a matter of understanding what happens in reality. Um, a good example for me on this, it, it was down, up, down in uh, Lake Charles after Hurricane Laura. The ASE7, which is the design guide, will tell you that you're supposed to have highest wind velocities at the corners of the roof, along hips, along eaves, and the ridge. Well, those areas have been heavily reinforced on the roofs. And so now in Laura, we were starting to see failure develop initially within the field. And so some people would come in and they would say, well, that's obviously a sign of a design defect. Well, I don't think it was a design defect. I think it was a matter of we've reinforced the outside edge. So now the most vulnerable part is in the middle. And so you've got to kind of see that and, and have that experience working with those materials. But to your question, uh, is there specific testing? At this point, no. Do you know any engineer that has been personally discredited on a professional level level from a Dalbert challenge? And if so, <clears throat> what was the convincing details and factors? I do know of Dauber challenges that have been successful. Um, the two most recent ones that I'm aware of are were in Texas and Florida, and they had to do with the uh, one sheet weather reports. And the uh, courts found that they couldn't be deposed and couldn't be counted on as reliable, as I understand it. And those engineers were not allowed to testify um, on that information that was derived from those sources. But, um, I don't have access to every single case and I don't know every single thing that's happened with every case. And just for viewers out there, um, challenge on a legal aspect, people don't understand is, you know, people, a Dalbert challenge, the whole purpose of it is to eliminate somebody as an expert in a case. That's what it's for. Now, big picture. And people don't understand that it doesn't mean that person isn't necessarily qualified to, you know, have an assignment and, and perform that assignment. Uh, maybe they made just a mistake during the assignment. Um, things like that that come into play. There's a lot of different factors. It's just not, hey, this person isn't suited for the job um and so i want i want to make that you know clear to everybody because there's a lot of perspective on daubert as oh people are you know excluded as experts because they're not qualified and, and a lot of times that's just not the case it, it might be simply a mistake or um maybe the the court believed that they formed an opinion without having all the data that was necessary to form it, things of that nature, uh, different factors that come into play.
Matt, you good? Dude, it's friggin' weird. <laughs> uh, Phil, Phil's pending a question. He says, what if the engineer and adjuster show up together? Um, honestly, I kind of think that's more of a question for Matt than uh, Chad. Like, wh hey, wh what do you do if, if you have an engineer and the adjuster that show up together? Off the hip, I, I don't care, honestly, but that's just my two cents. Matt, what about you? I, actually, I've had a lot of success with that. Um, a lot of times the engineer is a little bit more apt to, to talk when the adjuster is there. So if, if I can get the engineer speaking to me, I'm usually better off. Um, if I can have a conversation with the engineer on site, and usually I can get that to happen just by opening up with them, nerding out with them a little bit about anything asking them a lot of questions uh, and not like pointed questions, but just about anything that has to do with the property that I'm actually curious about. If you go out there with an open mind and you're actually curious about what is what you're looking at and trying to learn something new, I think that they pick up on that kind of thing. Most engineers want to share some of the knowledge that they have. They're, they're students of the industry just as much as you are. So most of the time anyway. They want to share as much as you do. But if the adjuster is there, they're more likely to actually open up and talk to you. I find. And if that is the case, you can usually get pretty far. I've had um, I've had engineers uh, say some dumb things when the adjuster is there, too. I, I actually found a video earlier today uh, while doing some uh, research for some B-roll for uh, the avoiding the engineers class. Uh, where I, I got the adjuster, or not the adjuster, the engineer to tell me, uh, he, he was trying to explain to me that all the damage on this asbestos tile roof was footfall damage, that none of it was wind-related, even though um, all of the uplift was on the wind, uh, windward side. It was, the tiles would lift up higher on the windward side than they would on the leeward side. It was... Um, objectively different on the windward side. Uh, but he was telling me that the, the tiles were breaking underfoot and was all this. And I was like, well, how many did you break when you were walking on? He's like, oh, several. And, you know, he's right there. And he's just he's just open up and talking to me about it. But he, I, I got him to say it a few different times. And I actually found the, the video that I told that story many times, but I found the video of it earlier today. Uh, it's a great video. It made me laugh again. I can't believe he said that on camera. <clears throat> Uh, anyway, so big picture is use it to your benefit if an adjuster yeah. shows up with an engineer because usually the engineer won't talk to you, but the adjuster will. I found another video um, where the, it was an industrial hygienist and the adjuster was there and the industrial hygienist was talking. And then I got a chance to go talk and I walked over to this wall and I'm, I'm going over this wall. And I'm going, I'm talking about how we're, we're supposed to cut this as best as containing drywall on a stud. And I'm, I'm doing my hands like this and I'm talking to the guy with my head turned. And I didn't realize, um, but the painting that's on the wall is of a nude woman. And my hands are definitely right over her tip. I'm doing this and I'm talking to the guy and I look back and I realize what I'm doing. I, I end up having to take the picture off the wall to go back and go over. I got that on camera. <laughs> and it was a great moment. 
Uh, Matt, we have a bunch of questions. Let, let's 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 mow through these. Yeah, yeah, questions, man. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. That, that that's a good story, though. By the way. Oh yeah, good story. All right. Did we get through all Mark Kramer's stuff? Probably. Engineer. Yeah, we're not going to be able to get through all of them. Let's let's try as much as possible. Did we do this one? If an engineer concluded a roof is repairable by visual observation and a licensed roofer says otherwise, did we ask this before? Do you recommend showing the engineer on site or having them revise the reports afterwards? I, I believe the question before this was very similar. It was, hey, can you determine if a roof is repairable or not just by visual inspection? Something yeah. of that effect. Um, and then I think this is piggybacking off of that question is, you know, do you uh, recommend maybe what performing a repairability yeah. test in front of the engineer uh, to help let them formulate their opinions? The, the more information the other side has, the better. The more information that any of us have, the better. And I had a case not that long ago where um, the damage was obvious from the ground. And I said from the very beginning, hey, we need to know whether we even have the shingles that are available, whether a repair is even possible. And um, we did some things and we were able to get the representative shingle and we were able to do a repairability assessment and we were able to document in front of that engineer all the issues with it. Now, I haven't seen the report on it, but it can be useful. Um, I will say this, just knowing the ego and knowing the mentality and knowing the mindset of an engineer, um, it is very, very difficult to change a report after it's written. Um, the more information you get to them before they put the sign and seal to it, the better. Um, sometimes the process to go through and modify a report is extremely difficult. Um, don't count on being able to get a report changed by providing new information. Everybody, that's great information. Seriously, if you're gonna meet an engineer out at an inspection, give them all the data that you have right then and there, you know, don't, don't wait till that stamp is down and then send it over and, and try to change his opinion that he's already inked on a piece of paper. So that Chad, great advice. All right. I got a lot of commentary, not just questions. I'm going to pop a few of those up for the heck of it. Cause this is funny. Pretengineering. For those that aren't uh, just engineering, they're pretending to, it's like someone that's practicing the medicine. And hey, while we're at it, let's put up a real um, website address. Chad, what what is your uh, firm's website? It's valorforensics.com. All right. I'm not going to be able to do that from my phone. If you're typing that in Remington, that'd be great. You know, hey, after after the show, we're going to put it into the comments and everything else. Right, cool. and blast that that website because. Uh, hey, man, what's up? Chad has a great reputation. I only hear good things about his reports. <laughs> I haven't heard anything about his reports, so. Rand man. I have to look at myself. Good, good seeing you last week, bud. Got Chad's scheduled to come and help us out on. <clears throat> One down in Arkansas, first engineer meeting I've looked forward to. That'll be interesting. <laughs> How do you feel about an engineer sending his report to an underwriter to finalize it before the engineer receives it back to be stamped? An underwriter. And I think he probably means just adjuster. 
I don't know if he means that. I mean, underwriter decides who's getting insured and who's not and how much it's going to cost. Is there so, an underwriter in an engineering firm? Is that a is that a term for something at an engineering firm too? Not, not that I'm aware of. Um, the ability to have a report and let a client see the report before it's signed and sealed, there's different theories on it. Um, it really depends on what it's being done for and what if anything will be done about it. Uh, a lot of times I can let a client see a draft of the report as a PDF and it's mainly just going, is there any question that you have Does something not make sense? Do I need to clarify something? I'm not going to change the intent. But if it's a situation where they go, I don't know what this word means. Um, I can address that and, you know, put something in there that says, Hey, this is what this means. Um, if it's a situation where you're asking the client to quote approve the report or, you know, you know, something along those lines, I think you get into a different question. Have you ever had one of your reports changed without you knowing, Chad? I'm not at liberty to answer the question at this time. On to the next question. I get a claim after an engineer has been out and denies hail and wind, but says shingles are pliable and agrees on 80 shingles to repair or replace, can I still fight repairability? Yes. You can still address repairability. I'd recommend going back to the nappy paper and, and see. You know, does the documentation show it? Yes or no? I mean, if you guys haven't found the National Academy of Forensic Engineers paper on assessing repairability of asphalt shingles yet, which, by the way, Chad wrote, um, shame on you, because there's a lot more fail conditions other than just pliability. I find from my own personal experience that you end up with more failures when you remove the nails than any other time. But that's my own experience especially if you're in an area that doesn't use a lot of OSB. Uh, had an engineer come out twice. His first report came out with no damages. He presented his report to him and he claimed he never wrote that and it must have been changed. Mm. But he was out twice. That's weird. In that case, that's the situation. I think it was APA American Policyholders was looking at that. I would, uh, American Policyholder Association. Yeah, I think that that would be a uh, conversation. Yeah. Um, Remington and I are both members. I'm also one of the uh, board advisors for the group. If you are curious about the American Policyholder Association, you can reach out to myself or Remington about it. Uh, David says, great seeing you at the biggest Ruby Storm Conference in Fort Lauderdale last week. It was the biggest one ever. That wasn't. <laughs> nice seeing you, David. He explained that an underwriter, by the way, David is the rep for Euroshield, a shingle manufacturer that makes rubber roofing materials. Um, and they have a hail proof shingle. And I have a hail gun. I have a hail gun. It's called a little shit. It's an acronym. It stands for shoots hail into things. And I shot the shit out of that thing. And I damaged it, damn it. 
I finally damaged it, David. I have a video coming out very soon. I'm not excited about it. Hail proof my ass. I did explode the cannon. It 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 exploded. The cannon was uh, in worse shape than the shingles were, and when it was over, but I did it. I damaged it. Damn it! Barely. I mean, it got like a little scratch on it, but still. <laughs> Uh, hey, David, David's a big guy, man. I'd stop talking trash. Hope Leslie appreciates the hard work I do to try to destroy her shit. <laughs> anyway. Uh, is there any reports like the one you just mentioned regarding sighting? Okay, now he explained that an underwriter that does it internally before any of the reports are sent out. That sounds more like an internal reviewer. Yeah, I would say that's probably a staff reviewer, an admin reviewer, a technical reviewer. Yeah. But uh, normally, if they're reviewing that document, it should be coming back to the signing professional to sign it. Um, if there are significant requests for changes, then uh, that signer should be well aware of it. Matt is the best travel companion, FYI. It's because I snuggle so well. Uh, we need a Guinness, boys. All right, this is... Hey, Jason, how you doing? proud of me for damaging it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry I missed what you said about Chad's forensic paper. Is there a link for that? Uh, Chad, if you want to share, if, you're, if you'll give us permission to share that. Go for it. If you're allowed to get... Yeah, I can from, go to the... Uh, Nafi journal, which is nafe.org, go to the journal and put my name in, and paper comes up. There you go. There you go. The National Academy of Forensic Engineers. All right. Um, what's the title? It's a long ass title. What is with engineers and long ass titles for their papers? I don't know. It's it is a long title. I'm just trying to pull it up. Yeah. They're very detailed, man. They're specific, you know? Yeah. The something, something method for assessment of asphalt shingle repairability methodology. Use of the repairability assessment method for evaluating asphalt composition shingle roof repairs. That's a long ass name, dude. <laughs> It might be necessary, Matt. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> How many lines did it take to write that? It was it was two lines. It was a paragraph all by itself. Uh, Euro shield shingles are gorgeous. A contractor installed a tan color one here in Minneapolis. Did not expect the color options either. Leslie will be impressed. Haven't had the heart to tell her. I'll tell her. I have one. I cannot wait to tell her. And then I'm going to show her the video where my cannon literally exploded into pieces of shrapnel. Long ass titles equals specificity. That's true. I think we got through it all. We did it. You have any last comments for our viewers, Chad? Um, or do you have any plans for the teaching of? Forensic engineers. Um, I personally believe that 
we need to start recognizing forensic engineering as a separate discipline. It really requires a knowledge and a skill set that is very different than your average person and your average engineer. Um, I would like to start seeing some kind of instruction be done on it. Um, unfortunately, um, that uh, perspective has not been shared by a lot of people yet. But I think, like a lot of things, it's just a matter of time. Um, you see the DFE after my name. That is a board certified diplomatic forensic engineering. That is something that you work and you can earn through the National Academy of Forensic Engineers. Um, as of right now, that is the only domestic forensic engineering credential that I am aware of. Uh, there may be something I don't know of. But I do see a very strong need for um, better instruction. And it needs to be a, a structured process over a period of years, not just a one-day course or a one-week course. Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Um, uh, as you know, I want to be as much a part of that as possible. Um, and there's some things that you know, I'm putting together that I can't even really talk about for the next nine days. In nine days, I get to talk about some shit, but uh, very soon we'll be able to, to reveal a few things and, and hopefully talk about what's uh, coming down the line. But uh, yeah, appreciate you being on, Chad. Uh, sorry about all the issues that I had tech-wise. I don't know what the hell happened. So I'm like high on some weird cold meds because I'm just on the plague. And then the tech didn't work. And then Windows update <laughs> figures. I think we're going to have to do a do-over so that you could actually use some of this for your own marketing and stuff. Sarah Parker's probably going to kill me. I, I bet she does, actually. Well, if anybody needs to reach out to me there, you know, they can call our office, or they can call, um, reach out through my email, which is chad.williams at valorforensics.com. You can put that in the show notes. And then um, that usually goes to my admin and I can make the time to talk with folks and try to help people out. Perfect. I'm going to put that in the, uh, in the sub, um, the information on the video when this actually is no longer a live video. And I'll put this in the commentary as well. Thanks for being on, Chad. Chad uh, hey, was will, one Russell, of the engineers that Matt. has helped me develop the avoiding the engineers denial Russell, class. Russell yeah. already made a comment that he found the article, so I just want to let Chad know. <laughs> Perfect. Right? We're good, but yeah, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> he's still reading the title though. <laughs> All right, appreciate it. Have a good. We'll finish the title soon. Thanks, Chad. All right, take care. If you guys are interested in that avoiding the engineer denial class, it is this Friday in three days. It's the only time I'm going to do it on Zoom this year. I'm not doing it again on Zoom. I'm not kidding about that. I don't bullshit people. So if you're if you want to do that on Zoom and not have to travel to it, this is your last chance to do so. Uh, find the listen to this bull stuff and find my name on Facebook. If you found this listen to this bull show, you can find me. All right. Oh, I've 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 sat through four of those classes of mats, and every single time I still pick up knowledge and nuggets what to use in the field. And uh, so, no, it's it, hey, if you haven't done it, you're you need to do yourself a favor and, and go ahead and sign up. Just being honest, I'll I'll be on that one um, for most of the most of the time as well on Friday. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was these guys that helped me make this a hell of a lot better too, but. Uh, you know, we can actually get a lot of attorneys taking that class. It helps them build out depositions a hell of a lot better. Um, but yeah.
You guys should take the class if you're doing any kind of claims. I'm biased as hell, but I think it's really good. All right. We're out. I'm going to go die now. <laughs> I'll see you guys later. <laughs> see ya.